morning, Bethel. So imagine, imagine if here at Bethel, it was a not-so-well-kept secret that one of the elders was having an affair with one of the church members. And nobody was doing anything about it. Or imagine if one of our members was caught embezzling funds at his company, and let's say it even made, you know, kind of one of the back pages of the newspaper, if anybody reads newspapers anymore, okay, you know, in the news somewhere. And what if we just went on without addressing it? And if we talked about it at all, it was something like, well, you know, we're a place of grace, no one's perfect. And yet, there was no, like, acknowledgement of wrongdoing, just kind of the typical dance. And then, what if your teenager, as a result of seeing some things like this, left for college, scrapped Christianity, turned away from the church in disgust, because the church is just full of a bunch of hypocrites, And yet, on the other hand, how do most people feel when the topic of church discipline comes up? So let's just say, in your lifetime, your conversations, what things have been tied to, maybe it's called excommunication, you've heard somebody bring that, that term up, and what, what adjectives or what descriptions were typically tied with that Thing that happens sometimes in churches. What words? I mean, lots of people in and outside the church disdain it, criticize churches who practice it. They, maybe even you, call it legalistic, judgmental, ungracious, bigoted, narrow-minded, self-righteous, intolerant, unloving. But do you see those two things laid side by side, you can't have your cake and eat it too. So 1 Corinthians 5 is all about church discipline. And you can imagine the people in Corinth chafing at, his, at Paul's commands. But one writer put it in perspective when he said, Paul might well have answered, is the doctor unloving or judgmental when he or she tells you that you must have the operation right away? Do we want a doctor who tolerates viruses, bacteria, cancer cells? Okay, you ready to head into 1 Corinthians 5? Um, visitors, welcome to Bethel. This is a pretty serious Sunday. Um, so we've been going through a series on 1 Corinthians, um, at least the first letter that we have recorded. It seems we'll see even in this chapter that there was a previous letter. Um, but Paul, in his correspondence with the Christian church in Corinth, has to address a lot of different issues. There's a lot of issues in Corinth. Things were kind of messy, which oftentimes they can be messy in churches because churches are filled with people, and people are messy, okay? So the first four chapters kind of hang together, and Paul is, the whole book, the cross is at the center, okay? Cruciform living is the, the title of this series through the book because Paul was, was just pleading with them and working with them and trying to 
lovingly father and shepherd them in a way to show them that they need to be shaped by the cross, the values of the cross, the values of Christ, rather than the values of the surrounding world that they lived in. The surrounding world is filled with, you know, number one, you know, selfishness as the main value and driver, and the cross is the opposite of that. Um, pride drives so much in this world. We want to look good. We want to be impressive. And Jesus came as a servant, a humble servant. So again, the cross needs to shape us rather than the culture or our world around us shaping us. And the world had shaped the Corinthian church too much. And so he's dealing in the first four chapters with how they ought to view themselves in humility, as well as leaders. So they were kind of identifying with leaders that were more impressive, um, and they were breaking up into factions. And so he's talking about unity and humility and all of this. Okay, so he wraps that section up. Look in your Bibles there at 1 Corinthians 4.21. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. You can find 1 Corinthians 4 on page 954. That's where we're going to be. And you remember right at the end of chapter 4, he says, What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? That's how he wanted to deal with them, like a gentle father, loving father. That's what he was to them. He, he was the one that led them to the faith, so he's like a spiritual father to them. So he's trying to be as gentle and gracious as possible. But unfortunately, in the realm of sexual morality, he actually needed to wield a rod of discipline. And that's what we have here in chapter 5. But just like a good father who knows what's best for his rebellious child or children, this is actually the most loving approach because they really needed to wake up in this regard. Okay, so let's look at verse 1. There is a problem in the Corinthian church, and it is a big problem because of the, the spreading corruption of sin. It is actually reported that there is sexual, immor sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. So one of the members of the church in Corinth is sleeping with his stepmother. That is a problem. But do you know what? If you read this chapter, that's actually not the biggest problem. The bigger problem is that the church isn't doing anything about it. So Paul is actually most concerned about the way the Corinthians are responding to this situation. It's, it's not that they see it as wrong, but they're just too coward, cowardly to address it. That's, that's not the issue. They're actually proud of it. What? So look at verse 2. And you are arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? I mean, how could they possibly be arrogant about this twisted scenario? I mean, Corinth was kind of like, you know, certain parts of California, you're not even tolerated in Corinth? Like, what in the world? This is... A... So how could they be proud of this? They're boasting. Look at verse 6. Your boasting is not good. You see that down in verse 6? So here's the thing. The Corinthians thought they were really spiritual. You saw that in chapter 2, beginning of chapter 3. We're going to see it again in chapter, chapters 12 and 14. But they think they're spiritual in such a way that some of them seem to think that it really didn't matter what you do with your body. As long as you're really spiritual, the body just doesn't matter as much. 
So we'll actually see this again in chapter 6 when he continues next week. Um, we'll see that in chapter 6 when he continues on to talk about sexuality and the body and so forth. Okay? So, but most likely this arrogance, this boasting is a result of that perspective, kind of a separation of body and spirit as if you can be really spiritual and it really doesn't matter what you do with your body in addition to a selfish, selfish misapplication of their freedom in Christ. We're free. You know, all things are possible, permissible, you know. So this obviously isn't true. They ought to know better. So Paul goes on in verse 6 to say, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So they certainly know that. I mean, it's a proverbial saying. It also has important Old Testament background in the Passover. But the point is that sin spreads. It has this corrupting influence. It's a cancer that eats away at individual hearts, and if it's left unchecked, it can spread and eat away at the health of a community, a church community, church family. So have you ever heard the saying, be killing sin or sin will be killing you? That's what's going on here. Or how about this saying? Sin that no one deals with is sin that everyone deals with. So they're both true. Sin kills. And our sin affects other people, period. So again, the importance of cruciform living the cross is at the center of this book because the cross needs to be at the center of our lives, shaping us. Otherwise, the world, the flesh, and the devil will be happy to shape us. Okay, Remember, Jesus said, Mark 8, 34 and 35, if anyone desires to follow after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Dying to all those selfish, I want to be a little God you know, I want my will to be done on earth as it is in my own mind, sort of stuff that's killing us. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Jesus doesn't want us to lose our lives for eternity. He wants us to be saved. But whoever loses life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. Okay? Cruciform living. Crucified Savior, we follow him. Cruciform living. You must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's, that can sound harsh, but that's really ultimately good news because he's calling us to die to everything that's killing us. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So we must stand with Jesus, hating our sins, or we will stand with our sins and in effect will be hating Jesus. So the question is, what's more precious to us, Right? I mean, this is the way that Jesus talks in other places. This shouldn't surprise us. So Matthew 28, remember, um, he says, you know, you've heard that it said, do not commit adultery. But I say that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. He said the same thing about money. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. 
So be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Now let's connect the dots here between our need to kill sin and what church discipline is. So what do you think of when you think of church discipline? Many people just think excommunication, right? But that's only the last step. That's kind of the formal last step, which is usually the end of a long and painful process. So discipline in and of itself, the more kind of garden variety forms of it, is it if those are, it's not a bad thing, it's a good thing. The Lord disciplines those he loves and chastises every son whom he receives, Hebrews 12, right? So Matthew 18 is one of the other key church discipline passages in the New Testament. So flip over there so that you can see how it is complementary. It's different. Some important differences, but complementary to our passage in 1 Corinthians 5. So it's back there on page 823 if you're using the Pew Bible. Matthew 18, we'll just look at verses um, 15 and 16 here to start off. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So you see what's going on here. Jesus is clearly saying, this is so good, that the circle should remain as small as possible to bring about repentance and reconciliation. Is that what you think of when you think of church discipline? Is somebody loves me enough to to challenge me on my unrepentant pattern of sin, and I say, oh, thank you, and I repent, and that's it. Church discipline, there we go. It should be happening all over the place, and nobody knows about it because it's supposed to stay small, right? So stuff like gossip actually wrongly widens it. You know, sometimes we're afraid to to actually address that person directly, and instead... You know, Jesus didn't say, if your brother sins against you, go and tell, tell someone else what he did. And you say, oh, I can't believe he da 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 Or have you ever had someone? That sounds really justifiable, right? No, if your Christian brother or sister sins against you, and let's say this also, if it's not something that you can or should overlook in love, because we should overlook lots of stuff in love and not be nitpicky with each other should be gracious the way God has been gracious with us. This is pattern stuff that we're addressing. We're not the sin police, okay? We're not going for a gotcha vibe here in the church. That's not it at all, okay? But again, if there's this pattern or it's a grievous sin, you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he doesn't listen, then you bring the subjective third party or two people to help establish things. And maybe you were wrong. You didn't see things rightly and and you work it out that way. Or if he listens to the two or three, then great. End of discipline. So that kind of thing can, can happen all the time. It should, especially in the context of our community groups. It's loving community, taking care and encouraging one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of us will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's Hebrews 3, being lived out among us. But if a person is persistently resistant to those loving appeals, then things get more serious. If you won't get serious with your sin, 
then things will get serious with you. Okay, so Jesus goes on in Matthew 18. If he refuses to listen to them, the two or three, tell it to the church. But again, still here, the point is not, let's just publicly shame them and, you know, lock the door. They can't come back. No, the point is still repentance and restoration with this increasing weight of collective appeal to turn from your sin. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, treat them as if they're an unbeliever. You don't know. God knows, but they're certainly kind of dead set on this path. So are unbelievers members in a local Christian church? No. So what that looks like is removing someone's membership, name from the the role. Should unbelievers participate in the Lord's table? No. So you say, the table, until you're willing to repent, is not for you. Now, should unbelievers be banned from attending church? No. Absolutely come and hear the word. What's going to break that heart of stone is the word, right? So Jesus says then in verse 18 of Matthew 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is like church disciplinary decisions like this, as long as they're handled rightly, they're not little decisions just made in a corner. Oh, I'll just go down the street to another church. If a true church is exercising their God-given authority in a context like this, this is heaven's judgment coming down and being enacted on earth. The binding is that removal from membership in the table. The loosing is forgiveness and reconciliation, restoration. So Jonathan Lehman in a little book called Church Discipline, How the Church Protects the Name of Jesus, I highly recommend this. It's really readable, short, um, very accessible. In fact, I'm probably going to be sending kind of a boiled down version of this with some other thoughts um, just as a supplementary resource this week. Um, So you can look for that coming through um, Bethel Connected. But let me just give you a couple quotes here from the book. Jesus gave the local church the authority of the keys, this binding and loosing language, to officially affirm and oversee citizens of his kingdom. Churches do not make people Christians. The Spirit does that. But churches have the declarative authority and responsibility for making public statements before the nations about who is and isn't a Christian. A church's act of excommunication, therefore, consists of the public statement that it can no longer vouch for an individual's citizenship in heaven. Excommunication is a church's declaration that it can no longer affirm that an individual is a Christian. He goes on and says, a church needs to understand that church membership is not like membership in a club or some other voluntary organization. It's about citizenship in a kingdom in which we are affirmed and recognized as ambassadors by the king's embassy-like representative, the local church. Individual Christians do not have the authority, once they become convinced that they are Christians, to stand before the world and say, hey world, I'm with Jesus, through self-baptism and giving themselves the Lord's Supper. No, the church has that authority. People join a church by the authority of a church, and they exit a church by the authority of a church. So now back to 1 Corinthians 5. Here's... Here's the point. 1 Corinthians 5 begins where Matthew 18 ends. Okay? So that's how they're complementary. They go 
together. This guy's sin is so flagrant that Paul says he must be removed immediately. Okay, so second point, removal. Look at the end of verse 2. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So think membership, think Lord's table. Verse 3, for though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one, on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So notice several things here, okay? First, Paul, he needs to push them to action, the church, to take action here, but he doesn't do it unilaterally. They need to take this action. This is their responsibility. When you are assembled, you are to deliver this man to Satan. Okay, note also that the power and authority for such judgments comes from the Lord Jesus. Do you see how centrally the Lord Jesus figures into this action? Look at verses 4 and 5. Three times the Lord Jesus is mentioned. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, with the power of our Lord Jesus, And then finally, that this man's spirit would be saved in the day of the Lord when Jesus returns. Now, what in the world does does it mean to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh? Talk about like a whole big bag full of politically incorrect statements, you know? Like authority, church discipline, Satan, you know, deliver this man to Satan. Well, God going to define reality for us or the world? All right, what does this mean? Well, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, you don't have to turn there, but it says that Satan is the God of this world, okay? 1 John 5, 19 says, we know that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Okay, it's not always going to be this way. One day, King Jesus is going to return and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, right? Satan and his minions will be thrown into the eternal fire, but for now, Satan is the God of this world. The church is the outpost of the kingdom of God, the coming kingdom of God. It's the place where the kingdom of God has come on earth as it is in heaven. So to deliver this man to Satan is to remove him from the protective care of the church, the kingdom of light of God's beloved son, and leave him out in the dark, as it were, the domain of darkness in Satan's hood, you could say, where he rules the streets. But they're to do this for the destruction of his flesh. Now, again, what does that mean? Well, most likely, I'm not going to go into the options here, but I think most likely it refers to the destruction of his sinful flesh, like, say, Romans 8. Listen to these verses. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, sinful nature, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Okay, so bottom line, to be cast out into the darkness is intended to wake this man up from his spiritual stupor, striking the fear of God into him so that he will repent and run back to the refuge. Right? 
so that he's motivated to put his flesh. This isn't worth it. I'm dropping this. I am repenting of this and running to Jesus. It's scary out there. So again, to be killing sin so that sin doesn't kill him. Okay, so again, even here, the purpose is salvation. Do you see that? Deliver him to Satan, his realm and authority, so that he may be delivered, saved. So Paul makes this course of action very clear at the end of the chapter as well. Look down at verses 12 and 13. Again, this removal, second point. Um, he repeats and kind of makes sure that they're very clear what they ought to do. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Answer, nothing. That's right. Second question, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Answer, yes. God judges those outside implied, but as for you, purge the evil person from among you, which is a refrain from Deuteronomy, how to deal with sin in the camp, okay? So do you see it goes A, B, A, B. What have I to do with judging outsiders? Nothing. God judges those outside. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Yes. Purge the evil person from among you. This removal is what Paul is calling for. So there are outsiders, people who make no claim to be Christians, And there are those inside the church, those who profess faith in Christ. What judging role do we take with those outside the church? None. That's God's job. We're not their judge. We have no judicial authority over them. We want to love them and win them to Jesus with the gospel. But is it not true that the church must judge her own? Not being judgmental and nitpicky and all this but making wise judgments. It means that if a professing believer persists in unrepentant sin, we must ultimately remove that person from church membership and participation in the Lord's table. This is hard stuff, okay? We chafe at this. Nobody likes to hear this. Nobody likes to actually have to do it. We fear these kind of things happening. I know I do. So we need to make sure we understand why, when it is necessary, why it's so important. So third point, I want us to just consider the reasons why church discipline is a good and right thing. Some of the reasons are here in 1 Corinthians 5 and a few from elsewhere. Uh, but again, this is, can be such a like, hot and emotionally charged topic, especially if you have some bad experience in your background, like maybe even here. Bethel, and then you have like this allergic reaction to church discipline. Like, don't want to ever go there again. Well, we need to, again, follow King Jesus here. He's in charge. And this is his idea, not mine. So why discipline? number of reasons the Bible gives for why it's right and good. And let's just go through a few of them here. First, we've mentioned it already, but just to say it again, to save the disciplined. Okay, 2.5, for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Repentance and rest- restoration is always the goal. This is love. So Lehman, in this book, again, says, churches pursue discipline when they see a member taking the path toward death, and none of their pleading and arm-waving causes the person to turn around. It is the device of last resort for bringing an individual to repentance. It's also love because it actually protects 
someone like that in that situation from false security, which is a loving thing. They can't continue to live under the illusion that their hard-hearted unrepentance doesn't matter. As if it's okay to have God while you're in bed with the world. As if it's okay to have your church community cake and eat your sin too. So, do you know what formal discipline is? I, I love this illustration by Lehman. It's just like one line, but it just got me thinking. He basically says formal disciplines, that stage, that removal stage, is like staging a small play that pictures the great judgment to come. It's like a preview. In other words, it says, this is a preview of what is going to happen to you if you stay on this course. And the judgment and the consequences and the shame will be infinitely greater than what you're experiencing now. So please wake up. Do you see? So in that sense, it's a mercy, it's a kindness, it's patience on God's part to do it now, to do it this way, to lead you to repentance before it's too late. Does that make sense? Because there's actually a day of surprise coming. The Bible says for many. Many will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this, this, and this? And he said, depart from me, I never knew you. Or Matthew 25. Oh, Lord, when did we see you naked and, you know, not clothe you and, you know, and sick and not come and visit you? Like, what? You didn't do it the least of me. You didn't do it. The least of these, you didn't do it unto me. So, I would rather risk discomfort and warn now than have people from our church be surprised at the last day. Anybody with me? Okay. So again, listen, please hear me. There, there's so many negative connotations with church discipline. A lot of churches don't even practice it anymore. Many Christians write it off as judgmental and harsh. You may have had some bad experiences. But this is, again, this is God's word. This is King Jesus' authority and wisdom, not not just our churches or mine or whatever. And the goal is restoration. The goal is restoration. The goal is, okay? So the purpose is love, not a sentimental love. It's tough love to be sure, but when it's done rightly, it is most certainly loving. So even removing someone from membership and disallowing them from the Lord's table, let this be said as well, it is not the end of the story. It doesn't have to be. It's not intended to be the end of the story, right? Not like, whew, glad he's gone, you know? Like, good thing she's out of here. No, the purpose is repentance and restoration. You continue to pray and plead. So other reasons, a few more quickly. The health of the church, because again, sin spreads. It's this corrupting influence, the leaven idea. It protects the church from the leaven of sin. Sin that no one deals with is sin that everyone will have to deal with. Another one, the witness of the church. Did you know that church discipline is good for non-Christians? In Wilmington? How many people write off the church because the church allows rank hypocrisy to go unchecked? If the salt loses its saltiness, what is it good for? So this actually also, it doesn't just protect the reputation of Jesus in the community around us. It also protects young people and new Christians inside our church. 
if we don't deal with sin, then the message is sent to younger generations that, again, rank hypocrisy is tolerated. That, you know, hey, ugly stuff, it just gets swept under the rug, and we just pretend like the elephant isn't in the room. That's a bad message, right? It's very damaging. So the real bottom line is that church discipline protects the name and reputation of Jesus. It's love. It's love for that erring member. It's love for the church. It's love for the lost. It's love for the name of Christ. That's what this is all about. As hard as it can be to consider, that's what it's all about. So that's why. Now how? Just briefly, how do we go about this? We can't tease this out too much, but I do just want to say a few things here. Always, 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 I mean, except for some very unique circumstances, this is, you go about this slowly. You go about this patiently. You go about this carefully. You go about this mercifully and graciously. If you're going to err, you're going to err on the slow side. If you're going to err, you're going to err on the merciful, gracious side. Because nobody wants to go there. They, everybody wants this person to come to repentance. And you go about this prayerfully. Okay, so having been involved in a few of these situations um, here and back in previous church that I was at, I can tell you, myself, my brother elders, I mean, again, oftentimes this happens, this starts grassroots, but once it kind of escalates to the point where it would need to be told to the church, obviously church leaders are involved, right? They need to be leading that process. But I'll tell you what, we walk through these things with fear and trepidation. Very carefully, very prayerfully, very slowly. And when we finally must take this course of action with a member, a professing Christian who is stubbornly refusing to repent and turn from their sin and follow Jesus, then Jesus gives, Paul gives, um, God through Paul, Verse 11 gives us instruction on what it looks like. So look at verse 11. How do we do this? And when I say this, this is the last step, this, this formal removal step. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister. If he or she is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, which in other places in the Bible, refers to kind of a hot-headed man or a quarrelsome woman, okay? Drunkard or swindler. So Paul is very careful here. He knows that we are all tempted. I mean, he, you remember back, back in chapter 1, he's talking to Corinth where it's just a hot mess, and he says, you guys, <laughs> I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Okay? So you can be a mess and still really be Jesus' mess. Okay? Everybody clear on that? So Paul's very careful here. He knows that we're all tempted to give in. We're tempted by and we're tempted to give in to sexual immorality, greed, idolatry, anger, lack of self-control with alcohol, other things, even cheat our company by taking advantage of privileges, you know, swindler. None of that's okay, but that is different. This list is different than, than that kind of ordinary temptation and sin, and then you repent. Paul chooses nouns on purpose here. He says, if he is this, 
sexually immoral person, a greedy person, idolatrous person, an abusive person, a drunkard, a ravenous person. These are nouns, not adjectives. It means that these are people who are defined by these sins. It's who they are. Okay, that's an important distinction. So if people are defined by these sins and they still name the name of Christ, then you must relate to them as the people that they've chosen to be. It's kind of a hardened path that they're on. They're choosing to identify by their behavior as unbelievers, even though they still claim the name of Christ, so they must be removed from membership and not allowed to participate in the Lord's table. Look at how verse 11 ends. It's probably one of the most challenging sections here. Not even to eat with such a one. Well, at least that means the Lord's table, for sure. It likely means more than that. So, what does that more refer to? Well, first we ought to note that table fellowship had more significant meaning in the first century in the Middle East than it does today in the West. Okay, to eat with someone implied a relationship and alignment of beliefs and values. Peter would not eat with Gentiles, remember? And actually, it was really shocking that Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. How could you do that? Well, it's because God loves his enemies. It's because Jesus was reaching out to these guys to make them his disciples. Okay, So Jews who cared about ceremonial cleanness and purity didn't eat with defiled sinners. Well, we don't have those same connotations, right? But we don't want to mute this command. So the issue, I think, is that we just can't go on business as usual as if there's nothing greater on the table. Okay, The need for this person to repent changes the relationship. So let me just put it this way. Really practically, let's say that there's somebody in your community group that just goes off the rails and they keep stiff-arming all the mercy and love and overtures to draw them back. There's a difference between you having lunch with them and pleading with them to repent and you hanging out on Friday Friday night over dinner and just whooping it up as if everything's fine. See see the difference? You're eating in both cases, but the... Again, I'm going to try to mute this command, but we don't have quite the same table fellowship connotations. Um, So, you know, we could talk about some of those nuances, but again, the point is certainly the Lord's table. Secondly, we can't just enjoy peaceful fellowship the way that we once did because we can't turn a blind eye to to their rebellion and pretend like it doesn't matter. Okay, so there's lots of sticky scenarios that we can't tease out in detail right now, but that's the general meaning. So, for instance, like what if it's a family member? Sticky scenarios. How would you treat a disciplined family member? Well, I don't think that this would completely, you know, take away the obligations, for instance, for husband to eat dinner with his wife or a wife to, you know, live with her husband. So 1 Peter 3, you see that with a a wife who's remaining with this husband who's not obeying the word. So anyway, we can tease all that out later, but the point is you can't go on as if everything is the same, everything's fine because it's not. 
Okay, so it's all very heavy, rightly so. This is one of the reasons why we do exposition, <laughs> so that we don't just kind of pick and choose what we like. We just let the word shape us rather than, you know, just having kind of our canon within the canon. But again, life is no joke. So this is heavy, but life is no joke. We're not practicing with a net, folks. Oh, if I fall, just... Well, I mean, yeah, actually the grace of Jesus is like a net, but you know what I'm saying. If, if you're really rebelling against Jesus and, you know, keep stiff-arming him, like these warnings in the Bible are real. Souls are at stake. So we are in a raging spiritual battle. Our enemy is no cream puff. He's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We are not here to be some kind of social club or to pay some little morality veneer on you or your kids. We are desperate sinners in desperate need of a mighty Savior. And we are the church, the vanguard of the advancing, coming kingdom of God. And so we need to be aligned with Jesus, following him, denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following him, saying anything that challenges his lordship, I'm not going to cherish that because I cherish him. So we need to be killing sin or sin will be killing us. It's deadly, brothers and sisters, like cancer in you, in our church, in me. So what we need to do, oddly enough, wonderfully enough, is we need to clear out the leaven and celebrate the Passover. Any amens to that? Okay. So look at verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven. Okay, remove the corrupting influence that you may be a new lump <laughs> as you really are unleavened. What? Well, here's the big explanation. Because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Do you know what the Passover was all about? It's about a total new beginning. Do you know that the calendar started anew when the people of Israel were led out of Egypt? You can read it in Exodus 12. New people based on deliverance. What accomplished that deliverance? The blood of the Lamb. So, those Israelite families, if they trusted God and His Word, believed His Word, and weren't going to play fast and loose with Him, He said, death angel's coming. You take this lamb without blemish, and you sacrifice it, and you put that blood over the doorposts, and the death angel comes over and passes over you, and you are protected. You're given mercy protection, grace. And then what happened the next day? They were redeemed. They were delivered. New people, set free. So in the rituals, they're supposed to clean out all the leaven from the house. You're not going to take, you don't have time to wait for your bread to rise. You're going to just go out in haste, right? So in the celebration of the Passover, in years and decades and centuries and millennia to follow, there's this ritual of cleansing out the leaven from the house, preparing. Because you remember that this is who you are. You're defined by this deliverance event when you were rescued from the house of slavery and you're made a new people 
by that deliverance because of the blood of the Lamb. Isn't that great? So do you see how the gospel, the cross of Jesus, is what shapes us and actually is the reason why we would do any of this? It's what empowers all of this. So the Christian life is like one big Passover celebration. Made new by deliverance. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil. We are killing that sin, right? We died to that. We denied ourselves, take up our house, and follow Jesus. We want all that stuff to die. That's the old life. Leave it behind in Egypt. Malice and evil. We celebrate the festival with the unleavened bread of sincerity, pure hearts, pure motives, and truth. Truth of the gospel, right? So the Christian life, in a sense, is one extended Passover celebration. So we are called to cleanse out the old leaven, cruciform living, put the flesh, the old way of life to death, die to the world, we're new people made new by redemption, and let's live like the new people that we are. Christ, our Passover lamb, shed his blood to cover our sin and cause the wrath and judgment of God to pass over. Why would we hang out in Egypt with our leaven? Why would we harbor this? We want to get rid of it and get on with Jesus. So just quickly in conclusion, three things. Is, is there any sin you're harboring? Listen to William Arnault. He said, the difference between an unconverted and a converted man is not that one has sins and the other has none. I sure hope you didn't hear that this morning. But that the one takes part with his cherished sins against the dreaded God and the other takes part with a reconciled God against his hated sins. So maybe this is just a merciful wake-up call to not stand with your cherished sins. Maybe you've been hiding something. Don't hide with it. Get out in the light and experience the freedom that comes from forgiveness and cleansing. Realize that your pursuit of holiness is a blessing not just to you, but to this church. Just like your pursuit of cherished sins will be a blight to this church. Secondly, are you going to stand with God and his word on these matters? This is a hard word, but here's the deal. We cannot do designer Christianity. We can't do cut and paste Christianity. Cutting out the bits we don't like. Keeping the bits we like. I mean, if you cut out the parts you don't like, then that aren't palatable to you, then you're trying to remake God in your own image, and then in doing so, you worship the God made in your image. So this is something that all members of Bethel need to be on board with. Not because, again, we're pursuing some police state, but because King Jesus is the one that rescued us from the house of slavery, and we're following him. And anything that gets in the way of that, we want to deal with it. Right? Praise so, yeah, once again, the discipline is not just the role of the leaders. Okay? In, in Matthew 18, it's tell it to the church. And here, it's when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. So, this is a faith issue for all of us. Okay? And then finally, this might sound totally counterintuitive, but you know what? If you're a believer and you're not a member, pursue membership. We're going to set up another class here soon. 
okay? You'll see it. Wait, wait, but you guys probably only discipline members, so, you know, I'm going to hedge my bets and make sure that I'm just not. You laugh. That might be why some of you don't pursue it, just in case. Do I want to be disciplined down the road? No. But you know what? I'm suspicious of my prone-to-wander heart. I need you guys. We need each other. This is part of God's grace and means of grace to keep us to the end. So why would you hold that out at arm's length? To protect yourself from what? You're going to protect yourself from the grace. I say that in love. Okay, we're done. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing all to us. And may that be really our heart's cry, that we want Jesus to be everything to us. And anything that gets in the way, we want to throw it off. Oh, Lord, would you convince us of these things? Even more importantly, would you convince us that Sin is like poison, and I pray that you would help us to be killing sin so that it is not killing us individually or corporately as your church, your temple. Help us to care about the purity of your bride, the purity of your temple, your dwelling place, and certainly about the glory of your name. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.